Well, hey, good morning, City Light Lincoln Church. Good to see you guys. My name is Austin, one of the pastors here. Haven't got to preach in like the last month here, and so I'm thankful to be here with you guys, getting open up rivals together and learn more about Jesus. We've got two weeks left in the book of Jonah uh, this week, and I think Mo finishes out next week. And so it's been an amazing journey. Uh, So you guys can open up your Bibles uh, to Jonah chapter 4. That's where we'll be. But as you're getting there, let me ask you this. Um, uh, When's the last time something good happened to someone bad? Like as you're kind of thinking, like when's the last time something good happened to someone bad? Well, I've got a picture here of a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer. You've heard of him. From the years of 1978 to 1991, he murdered, raped, and dismembered 17 men and boys. He was convicted of murder and child molestation uh, and sentenced to 16 life-term sentences. He was involved in cannibalism. He would keep parts of his victims' skeletons uh, to remember them and just some stuff. And so I remember, I mean, I just, uh, a couple weeks ago, I'm just reading articles about him, and I, I literally, I had to stop. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't internalize, I couldn't take it. I just, it just, the depravity, the, the, the sin, the story, the, the wreckage, the darkness, it was just too much to bear. It, 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 was, it was wild, and uh, he fin- when he finally went to prison, he was utterly hated and despised. Um, they kept him in solitary confinement for about the first year of his imprisonment because they believed if he was out in the general population that he would be killed, like, immediately um, because of what he'd done. So just, just to kind of take this into consideration, like, murderers, rapists, like, the worst criminals at this prison hated Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay, so this is kind of the, where he's at. And uh, during his time in prison, he met a man named Roy Ratcliffe. And uh, when everyone was hating and despising and cursing Jeffrey Dahmer, Roy decides to go and preach the gospel to Jeffrey Dahmer. And so for eight months, they would sit together every week and study the Bible, and Jeffrey would tell and confess his sin and everything he had done and kind of recount his story, and Roy would just gently preach the gospel to him, and we'd walk through the Bible together. And, um, and so I have a video here for you guys to watch. Because I always, I always believe the, uh, the lie that... Uh, evolution is truth, the theory of evolution is truth, that we all just came from uh, the slime and uh, when, we, when we died, you know, that was it. There was nothing. So it, the whole theory cheapens life and uh, started reading books about how, that show how evolution is, is just a complete lie. There's, there's, no, there's no basis in science to, uh, to uphold it. And I've come to, since come to believe that uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true creator of uh, the heavens and the earth. It just didn't just happen. And uh, I have accepted him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I, as as well as everyone else, will be accountable to him. Pretty wild. Had no idea that happened until about two weeks ago. Shortly after recording this video, Jeffrey Dahmer was beaten and killed in prison by a man named Christopher Scarver, who later became kind of known as a hero. Many people believe that Christopher finally gave Jeffrey Dahmer what he deserved, which was death. And uh, Roy Ratcliffe got to baptize Jeffrey Dahmer after he professed Jesus as his Lord and Savior and accepted his grace and his gift. And at Jeffrey's funeral, this is what Roy Ratcliffe said about him. He turned to God because there was no one else to turn to, but he showed great courage for his daring to ask the question, is heaven for me too? I think many people are resentful of him for asking that question, but he dared to ask and he dared to believe the answer. And in response to that, a college professor said, if Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven, I don't want to be there. 
I mean, I, I know this is deep, but can, can you imagine this man that raped children and that ate people standing in heaven, worshiping Jesus, lifting his hands next to you? Like, can you pick... It just doesn't sit right with our stomach. Like, we don't like that idea of sharing heaven with notorious sinners. Like, that just, it just does something in our stomachs. It doesn't sit right. But here's why Jeffrey Dahmer's story matters, and here's why Jonah's stories matter, and here's why your story matters, is that these verses will test us and press in on just how deeply we understand grace. These verses will press in and test us on just how deeply we trust God to be God and do what he wants to do. It makes us ask the question, am I willing to love my enemies the way Jesus loved them? Am I willing to actually say salvation belongs to the Lord? And in Jonah chapter 4, in our verses today, we're going to see that the alternative isn't just um, anger towards your enemies, it's actually anger towards God, right? So let's look at, we'll just reread verse uh, Jonah 4, verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So my first point is our problem with people wanting condemnation, not conviction. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page, to give us a recap, Jonah, kind of the whole, the whole book so far, he refuses to go to Nineveh after God calls him to. He flees, uh, gets on a ship, gets thrown off a ship, gets swallowed by a fish, prays, God spares his life, spits him back out on dry land. God says, go again to Nineveh. He actually goes this time, goes, gives a short, unenthused sermon, of which five words in the Hebrew, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And uh, it's crazy because the entire city of Nineveh turns, repents from their sin and turns to God. Okay, now remember, Nineveh is a furious enemy of God. Like they, and his people, they've done nothing good. They've done nothing to earn God's warning or Jonah going or anything like that. They are the um, strongest force in the known world. Currently, they are uh, just, just murderers and volatile and all this stuff. Jonah goes, gives a short sermon, and the entire city turns from their sin and turns to God. And God shows them mercy by not destroying them. It's crazy. Now, if you see that, if you stop right there at the last verse of chapter 3, History would portray Jonah as the greatest of all the prophets, right? Like, dude preached a five-word message, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people get saved, okay? Some of y'all want to try that? You want to go to Las Vegas, try to preach a little five and see the whole... No, it doesn't work. You know, it's just like crazy. But what I love about this is that um, God doesn't just look at outward appearances, right? He looks at the heart. And I believe that's why we have Jonah chapter 4. Like, we get to see Jonah's heart, and we get to see it, and it exposes his sin. See, I've learned, I mean, through the book of Jonah, that we can do right things for God with the wrong motive, right? Now, Jonah is literally living everyone's dream. Like, isn't it, isn't it a dream to be able to be used by God to have an eternal impact on someone else? Like, it's one of the greatest joys of my job if someone comes up to me after a sermon and says, man, God used you preaching his word to show me uh, or bring me from eternal death to eternal life or bring me uh, new things about the gospel to see God more clearly. Someone says, Austin, man, God used your friendship to show me more about the gospel. Whatever it is, it's one of the greatest joys of my life. And so if, like, my entire career as a pastor, if some one person comes to know Jesus through my preaching, win. You know, I'm happy, you know. And Jonah preaches one sermon that he didn't even prepare for, and hundreds of thousands of people come to know God, and he's mad about it. Verse 1 says that God, relenting from disaster, displeased Jonah exceedingly. Like, dude is livid. Like, he's angrier than when you get home from the drive-thru and they forgot your fries. 
You know what I mean? Like that kind of anger is what's happening in him right now. Like he is angrier than when you're waiting downtown for that parking spot and someone comes from the other way and goes in. Like you're about to get out of your car and do something, you know? He's angrier than when your favorite football team goes four and eight. Okay, I don't mean to bring that up, but I just want to make this personal, okay? I know we got some wounds in this room from that. But anyways, he is mad. But the other question is why? Why is Jonah mad? Because he wanted condemnation, not conviction. Okay, so let me briefly just define those two terms, condemnation and conviction. To condemn is to pronounce guilty, right? To declare over another person divine judgment. Essentially, condemnation is wanting someone to go to hell. And uh, in verse 2, Jonah says that he knew that God would be gracious to the Ninevites, and that's actually why he originally didn't go to Nineveh, is because he wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He wanted them to go to hell. He didn't want them to get God's mercy, right? That's condemnation. And on the other hand, this is my working definition of conviction. Conviction is the work of God's spirit softening uh, someone's calloused heart, confronting them of their sin, convincing them of their need of forgiveness, and compelling them towards obedience. Okay, that's what conviction is. And so my question for you is, do you want condemnation or conviction for the people that are placed in front of you? Like, it matters how we feel about the people in front of us. And a few weeks ago, I referred to Nineveh kind of contextually as ISIS, right? If we were to get an idea and mainly to show the danger and kind of how volatile they are. Um, But I think that that example falls short in a few ways because it's not as personal to all of us, right? We don't naturally think of ISIS and see as a, a personal threat to us every day. And the danger of this passage and this story not being personal to us is that we start to point fingers at Jonah, Right? Dude, are you serious, Jonah? Get over it, man. Like, can't you just get over this feud with the Ninevites? Like, they're your brothers now in the faith, and it's okay. Dude, are you serious? Just be happy that God used you. It doesn't matter who he used you to save. God used you. Just be happy, right? We can start to point fingers, but if we can empathize and relate to Jonah's anger and find actually who the Ninevites are for us, we'll start to realize, and God will start to convict us, oh my gosh, I do struggle with being angry like Jonah, right? We're on the same page. And so let me just ask you two questions to try and draw some of this out. And the first one is, what is your predominant feeling uh, when you hear or see someone that you don't like, right? So when you're scrolling on Facebook and you see someone make a racist comment, right? When you see a picture of a bomber that killed American troops, when you see a post about a political party or a stance that you don't agree with, when you hear about a person that has hurt you or hurt someone you love, what's the predominant feeling in your heart when you see another mass shooter? And I think from Jonah's story, two primarily feelings that we see come out in Jonah that I think also come out in us. And the first one uh, is anger, right? Now, anger, just by definition, is the emotion you feel when your expectation for justice isn't met, Right? That's what anger is. So anger happens when good things happen to bad people. Anger happens and comes out when we think things are unfair. Jonah is exceedingly angry. Why? Because he thinks the Ninevites should be destroyed. Because they should. They've created evil. That doesn't seem just that they got mercy. Okay? Anger. The second feeling is superiority. Right? That Jonah comes out. So we start to look down on people we don't like. People that have hurt us or hurt people we love. We start to pick them apart and point out every single flaw. We want reciprocation. And I, when, I'm, when I feel superior in my anger towards someone, I feel like the men in John 8 that have rocks in their hands ready to throw the stone at the woman caught in adultery. And then I hear Jesus' voice, let the one among you without sin throw the first stone. 
problem with superiority is that we think that whatever moral standard we have, that we are better than the other person. Therefore, we can look down on them. And Jesus says, no, you're all sinful. Like the ground before the cross is level. Like we stand there all guilty, condemned, whatever our sin is. Jonah believed deeply on whatever standard he had that he deserved God's love more than the Ninevites. Therefore, he tried to withhold it from them, right? And so for you, what's the predominant feeling that you have when you hear or see someone that you don't like? Second question, who is a person or a group of people that you would wrestle with most about receiving grace? Okay, this is personal. Like, I want this to be personal. And as we see Jonah in his story, I think it's safe to assume that his answer to that question is Nineveh, right? Like, these are, super, these are primary enemies of God, and I think God did this for a reason. And I, as I thought, I've never thought about this, but as I thought this week, I wonder if there's any other countries or places that God could have called Jonah to, and Jonah said no. And ultimately, these verses don't tell us, right? We can't speculate on that. But, but, but I have to imagine that this might be the hardest place for Jonah to go, the, per, the people or place he would wrestle with most receiving grace. So who is it for you? Who would you wrestle with most receiving grace? And maybe it's someone that really hurt you uh, or, or scarred you. Maybe it's uh, someone that, that hurt someone that you deeply love and care for. Um, maybe it's someone that stands for the opposite of what you believe in. But actually, like right now, take a moment and think about who you would have the hardest time with seeing receive grace or get mercy. You can take a couple seconds to think about that. Now, to make this personal, my mom got a divorce from my stepdad about five years ago. And um, uh, it was a really messy divorce. Like nothing was good about it. Nothing was clean. Nothing was mature about it. And he controlled all the money. And so she was completely on her own, had no means to provide for herself. I felt helpless because I'm in Nebraska and she's in California. And um, it just just felt really immature on every side. There was emotional abuse and some physical abuse. Uh, He hurt my mom, left her helpless, and didn't seem to care about it. Again, I was angry and I'm disappointed and I feel her and they went back and forth for several years um, to try and figure out and negotiate terms of what would happen in the divorce and he can afford an amazing attorney she couldn't even barely afford an attorney right and so it just felt unfair and finally it settled and it got resolved or whatever and I feel like I just got over it or at least stopped thinking about it until this week until this question who is the person I would struggle with most receiving grace it's my ex-stepdad it's him I don't want him to get grace. I want him to get what he deserves. I want him to be hurt the way that he hurt my mom and he hurt me, right? And I'm just letting you in on my heart process. Like, this is my sin coming out before you. And so I just want to ask, who is it for you? Who'd you struggle with? And that's a hard question to wrestle, but I just want to faithfully ask you that. And and, and then so as you have that, to take this a step further, how would you feel if God had you be the person to go tell them about grace? Some of y'all are like, I'm out. No, he did not just go there. I'm out, you know? Like, no, just as we're coming to grips and coming to terms with the fact that God might ask us to actually forgive or show mercy to the people that hurt us or hurt people we love, he takes it a step further and says, no, actually, what if you were the one to tell them about that mercy and grace? And it seems crazy, but this is Jonah's story. This is what happened to Jonah. Like, God's not saying, hey, Jonah, hey, buddy, is it okay if I have your friend go tell Nineveh? I know you don't like him, but can I have your friend go tell him? No, he's calling Jonah to go. I'm like, 
man, I'm, I finally am okay with, some, with someone going and telling my ex-stepdad about Jesus' grace, but I don't want to be the one to. But this is the call. And in Matthew 5, Jesus says he calls us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. And I wish that verse said, just tolerate your enemies. Because I could get to a point where I could tolerate my enemies. But loving my enemies, spending time in prayer for my enemies, no, it just seems so difficult. And then in verse 46, Jesus says, if, those, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Right? Everyone around the world loves people who love them. Every person that's ever existed loves people who love them. That's not a Christian distinctive. What distinguishes us and what distinguishes Jesus is a deep love for our enemies. In Luke twenty-two fifty, Jesus literally prays for forgiveness for the people that are nailing him to the cross and killing him. How deep and beautiful is that display of sacrificial love? And so, City Light, whoever your enemies are, your Ninevites, whoever is the hardest for you to receive, receive grace or extend grace to, are you loving them the way Jesus loved his enemies? Or are you loving them the way that Jesus loves you? And are you wanting condemnation for them or conviction for them? I have a picture here of Larry Nasser. He was the USA um, national gymnastics team doctor. And then I have another picture here of Rachel Denhollander. She was a former Olympic athlete. She's now a lawyer. And Rachel was the first woman to come forward and uh, accuse Larry Nasser of sexual assault. And since she came out forward and accused Larry of doing this, over 250 women came forward and said, Larry has sexually assaulted me. It's horrendous to see the depravity of this man and the darkness of what he did and the darkness of what he led so many women into that didn't deserve that whatsoever. But I'm glad that Jesus used Rachel Den Hollander to bring that forward and surface that. He was recently sentenced up to 175 years in prison. Justice was served, praise God, but something even more compelling happened. Woman after woman came up and gave their testimony about how Larry Nasser abused them, hurt them, uh, intimidated them. And uh, at the very end, Rachel Denhall, and the first one to bring it up, was the last person to give her testimony. She stands up and she gives a, a passionate 36-minute testimony of all of these things. And here's what she says towards the end. Here's what she says to the man that sexually assaulted her and hundreds of more women. The Bible speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Is that not one of the most powerful, beautiful things? Rachel Denhollander understands the gospel. Rachel Denhollander has experienced the deep, scandalous, transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Her story encapsulates my entire first point. Like, I could just play that video and it would be done. As I watched her 36-minute testimony, I could feel the hurt in her heart. 
that she has faced and is going through. And I love that she pursued justice. Let me just make a caveat to be clear on this. Loving mercy and loving our enemies doesn't mean we don't pursue justice. Justice is good. We have the court and police and the legal system for a reason. Justice is good. God loves justice. Larry Nassar should absolutely be in prison. But what I love is that Rachel's deepest desire for the man that sexually assaulted her wasn't condemnation. It was conviction, right? As she stood boldly in front of Larry Nassar and millions watching, she did not want this man to go to hell. She did not want him to be condemned eternally. She wanted him to be convicted, to see and feel the weight of his sin so he might turn to Jesus and trust in his grace and his goodness. She wanted earthly justice, to lead him to eternal mercy. And that's our call. And I don't say this lightly. I know this is difficult to hear and receive and to internalize, but our call is to be Rachel Denhollander to the Larry Nassers in our life. Our call is to love like Jesus loved his enemies. And so can I just ask you, honestly, what are you wanting for your enemies, for your most despised people in your life, condemnation or conviction? Now, my entire life, as I've read through this book, Jonah, I thought the whole point of this book was uh, that we need to love our enemies, and it's not. See, Jonah's biggest problem wasn't that he didn't love his enemies. It was that he didn't love God. So let's, we'll, we'll see this in these verses. Read two and three with me. Uh, and, he, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. My second point is our problem with God, his character and control. See, this is Jonah's second prayer in the book, right? He prayed in chapter 2 and now in chapter 4, but it's very different. In chapter 2, he prays with a thankful heart. In chapter 4, he prays with an angry heart. In chapter 2, he prays saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And in chapter 4, he's complaining that God showed salvation to the Ninevites, right? You see that difference as it goes back. And, And so in this book, we finally see from Jonah's mouth the root of his disobedience, right? Like, like, it's not primarily an anger towards his enemies. That's just a symptom of the greater problem. No, it's anger towards the character and control of God. Jonah doesn't love what God loves. And my wife and I love doing premarital counseling. We love meeting with young couples, dating, engaged, whatever, married couples. We just love that. And every time we hang out, we'll ask, hey, what, what, what do you guys love? And there's always some natural overlap, right? Like we like hiking or, or going to the lake or, you know, being outdoors or card games or whatever. And then we love to ask the question, hey, what, uh, what do you love that the other person doesn't love? Right? And we've seen that the answer to that question is usually one of the biggest sources of conflict in a relationship. Right? Where one person cares about something and the other person doesn't have any regard for it. See, to love someone is to care about what they care about. So if your significant other lives and breathes golf, but you haven't taken the time to learn what a birdie is or a divot is, you may not be loving them super well. You know? You guys might be giving some nudges, like, you know, but you need to be nudged back probably. Anyways, um, um, but uh, one of the clearest ways you can love someone is by loving and caring about what they care about. And so last week I talked to my wife, Kristen. I said, hey, sweetheart, what, uh, are there things that you love and care about that I don't care about? You know? And uh, she thought for a second, and two things came up. You're going to love them. The Bachelor 
and sleep, okay? So those are the two things. And so, and so anyways, there are a lot of things I do not like about The Bachelor. And y'all will never hear me affirm The Bachelor or, okay, you know, it's like that's not, I don't love that. But my wife loves it for whatever reason. And she watches it with her friends and our city group girls or whatever. But, um, and so one of the clearest ways I can love her is by asking her what's going on. Hey, did the did they make fun of the Christian guy for still being a virgin? You know, is the guy with the slick back hair, is he still in the show? You know, who's your favorite person? You know, did they get kicked out? Whatever it is, right? Did you cry during the rose ceremony? You know, I don't know what it is. But, uh, but my wife feels super loved when I ask her about the bachelor. So I make sure I ask her about the bachelor and then sleep. Now, just by show of hands, raise your hand if you would consider yourself a night owl. Like, just raise your hand. Yeah, I'm a night owl. That's my group of people right there, okay? I'm with you all day long. Now raise your hand if you consider yourself an early morning person. God bless all of you. I don't know how <laughs> happened. Okay, now raise your hand for the third category that my wife's in. If you're like my wife and you just love sleep, okay? You got a lot of hands in there. Yeah, so my wife and you guys will be great friends, okay? She needs like a legit 10 hours, okay? I need like five or six and I'm all right. I'm like functioning good. And so, uh, but I realized as we started talking that I actually downplay her need for sleep, right? I'm just like, no, it's okay, let's stay up. And so when it's 10 p.m., which is just party time for me, she's like yawning, you know? I'm like, you know, what happened? And so when, we, when it's 10 p.m. and she's like, we're ready to go to bed and we just watched, uh, you know, an episode of Parks and Rec at the office, I'm thinking we just got started, now I don't argue with her. You know, I'm just like, okay, let's go to bed. You know, what I used to do is like, you know, you got like 15 seconds before it goes to the next show. And so we would like, okay, she's like, I'm tired, but I have the remote hidden right here. Where's the remote? We got to, you know, we got to stop it. It would go to the next episode. I'm like, we just, it started. We got to finish it. You know what I mean? I don't do that anymore. Okay. I'm just confessing my sin. And so anyways, that's what happened, right? To love my wife is to love what she loves. And it's the same thing for God, Right. Like, like to know what he cares about, to know what he loves, to orient our lives around the things that are important to God is to love God. To not love the things God loves is, is to not love God, right? You with me on that? In verse 2, I mean, it has to be one of the craziest verses in the Bible. Jonah is whining about God's character. He's complaining that God is gracious and merciful and patient and loving and kind See, Jonah knew God's character. He had the right theology. He knew all the right answers, but he hated the outward implications that God's character had on his enemies, right? He didn't love the people that God loved. And in anger, he quotes God's self-identifying statement in Exodus 34, verse 6. And so I just want to walk through these characteristics. There's only four, but just kind of give us an understanding of what this is and what this means about God. And the first one is he says he's gracious, right? Now, grace is getting something, that you, getting something good that you don't deserve, right? Uh, that, that, that's what grace is. It's the unmerited favor and love of God. You didn't earn it. You did nothing to uh, deserve it, and yet you have it. That is grace, right? And the second thing is mercy. It says that God's merciful. Now, on the opposite side, mercy is not getting something you deserve, right? So Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin are death, um, and, uh, and so all of us, every single one of us in the room has committed sin, is committing sin probably even in this next hour or two, and will commit sin for the rest of our lives, right? That's who we are. We've all fallen short. And so the wages of our sin is death, and yet look around. All of us are alive and breathing, right? Just to think, every breath you take is mercy. Like you don't deserve to live or be breathing, but God has shown you mercy by not taking your life, although you definitely deserve that. So, 
uh, we owe a great debt to God. And rather than having us pay for it, Jesus came, paid for it in our place, died the death that we deserve, paid for the sins that we committed, right? Um, Jesus paid for it. Uh, so mercy, to kind of understand, is, is getting your debt forgiven, and grace is getting money in your bank account, right? That's how it kind of works. Mercy, you're forgiven. Grace, hey, you're adopted. You know, you're, you're justified. So there it goes. Third thing, slow to anger. Now, for the dads in the room, you might empathize with me. I've realized I thought I was slow to anger, and I'm not now. Uh, I have an 18-month-old, and she's beautiful, but she is crazy. And so um, Jonah's complaining about God and his extreme patience giving chance after chance after chance to Nineveh. Like, God, they've, they've done so much to you. Why are you patient? You know, like, why are you not uh, bringing disaster on them? And I just want to ask the question, have you ever thought, like, God, why don't you just come back and make everything right? Like, the world is so wicked right now. Why don't you just come back and make everything right and take us to heaven or whatever? I mean, I mean like, God coming back would end all human trafficking and sex trafficking and racism and, and war and, and evil and all of these things, right? And so why doesn't he come back? And 2 Peter 3.9, thankfully, answers that question. It says, The Lord is patient to you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God is patiently waiting in heaven as he watches us fall into more and more sin so that we have another chance to see that sin and turn to him, right? Like, basically, God's patience and not coming back is because there are more spots in heaven, there are more people that Jesus is inviting into heaven that we can go to and tell him about. That's his patience, and that's what it is. That's the reason he um, has not came back, because there's more people to meet him and come to heaven. And the last one is steadfast love. Now, this is the faithful, covenant-keeping promise of God to rebellious people. So all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, as you read through it, just like covenant and covenant and covenant. And every single time God makes a covenant with his people, we never hold up our end of the deal, like ever. We drop the ball every single time. But guess what God does? He stays faithful. He's, he, he's committed. See, he just, like every single time, you, show, you see that God's love is a firm foundation we can stand on, we can bank on. And his covenant with us isn't based on our commitment to him, but his commitment to us. That's the best news you could hear. Now, in light of everything I just said, it would make complete sense to Jonah for these qualities, these characteristics to be shown and given to Israelites, God's people, right? Like totally, God, you're merciful and gracious and slow to anger and patient and, and loving to our people, your people. But the reality is that these characteristics of God are being shown to the Ninevites, God's enemies, uh, Jonah's enemies. It pushes Jonah over the edge and he's livid. See, Jonah is wanting to to control who God loves. He's angry at the freedom of God to be God. And so let me just point this out. This is huge. I don't know who's in the room or what you're coming with or what your past is or what you feel like towards God or where you are in darkness or light or whatever. But let me just point out, this is so huge, that God's character, his grace and mercy and patience and love is not only reserved for good people, Right? Like, God's grace isn't reserved for the people in the room that, haven't, that have only messed up a little bit. Like, God's mercy isn't only for the morally good people in the room that haven't cussed too much or drank too much or done too many bad things. God's patience isn't only given to the people in the room that have really improved themselves and gotten better and pulled themselves up, up there uh, with the bootstraps or whatever. No, God's love isn't only given to people that grew up in church and know the right answers. Not at all. City light. God's character has absolutely no regard 
for our human standards of deserving and earning. God's character and his mercy and grace and patience and love is given and directed towards the weak and the broken and the hurting and the tired and the weary and the lost and the sick and the failures and the misfits, the marginalized, the hurting, the victim, and the perpetrator. That's the gospel. That's who God extends his character to and his love to, not just to good people, but to all people. And I've learned as I've walked with Jesus that we are so quick to cling to these truths when they apply to us, and we cringe when they apply to the people we don't like, right? Oh, praise Jesus. I love that you are gracious to me and you showed me mercy. God, don't you ever be patient with my enemies. I do not like that you just... You know what I mean? It's like, it's like we, we have this double standard where we love that it's directed towards us and we hate when it's directed towards people we don't like. And this is what's happening with Jonah. And it pushes him where he's so angry about it that in verse 3, he literally wishes he was dead. I, I, you know, I don't have any control. I'm just so mad about this that it's better for me to die than to live. And so City Life, if, if you're, if whoever's in the room, if you're in a season right now where you're frustrated at God, is it because, because you try to put him in your nice little box that makes sense to you? Are, are, are you mad because he didn't do what you thought would be best or that what you thought should be done? Are you angry because his will didn't line up with your will? And, and uh, if you've ever felt that, which I absolutely have, I'm with you on that, it's because you're wanting control, right? Like, like we're wanting God to be put, to be a puppet, to do what we want him to do or whatever we think is best, but Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, God says, my, my ways are higher than your ways. My, my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God cannot be tamed on the leash of your expectations. Like he, he's free to be who he is. And so if you're despairing, if you feel that, if you're despairing in God's mysterious sovereign will, um, it, behind his, his grace and his mercy and his patience and love, if you're struggling with that, my invitation for you is to take another look at the cross and the empty tomb. Like gain a bigger perspective outside of what you feel in this moment. Like the most horrendous, horrible thing happening, Jesus dying, was the very miracle that brought us life, the very miracle that has us in the room today, right? And as appealing as control may sound, you don't want it. You can't see past the moment you're living in. But our God sees all things. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by our restrictions. No, he sees it all. He knows it all. He plans it all. And he is good. He's gracious and merciful and patient and loving. And so can I just honestly ask, are there characteristics of God that you don't like? Like, you can be honest about that. Like, I love that God listens. And we're going to see next week that God responds so patiently to Jonah's anger. Are there things that you're bringing before God that you just don't like about him? Are there areas in your life that you have to relinquish this false sense of control and just let God be God? My invitation is for us to let him be God. Now, City Light, although God is extremely and unrelentingly merciful, he is also absolutely just. And in the wrath of for Nineveh's sin had to be poured out, right? Nineveh's sins had to be paid for. And Jonah is yelling in frustration, where's the justice? 
Like, where, where's the justice? And hundreds of years later, after Jonah's prayer, this gracious, merciful, patient, loving God would send his only son, his perfect son. He would send Jesus. And this Jesus would never have a hint of sin, never taste rebellion, and yet he would be treated like Nineveh should have been treated. Right? He was beaten and, and spit on and mocked and nailed to a cross to be killed. But that wasn't even the worst of it. No, on the cross, Jesus took on Nineveh's sin that God looked over, right? Jesus took every last drop of their adultery and their murder and their heinous, unspeakable sins were poured out on the innocent Son of God. Jeffrey Dahmer's sin, Austin Edwards' sin, your sin was poured out on the innocent shoulders of Jesus. He took every last drop of the wrath that you and I deserve so that we could only get grace and mercy and patience and love. Jonah screams in frustration, where's the justice? And God patiently responds, just wait. I'll, I'll pay for that sin. I'll, I'll get justice for Nineveh's sin, and I'll get justice for your sin. By sending my son, justice will be paid, and it'll be paid on the cross. City Light, your entire story can be summed up by one sentence. Something marvelously good happening to someone horrendously bad because of Jesus. If you don't like bad things happening, or sorry, if you don't like good things happening to bad people, then you don't understand your story. If you don't like good things happening to bad people, then you don't understand the gospel. City Light, this gospel that we preach, this Jesus that we sing about, this grace that we exalt and get to see every week in the Bible is so scandalous and beautiful. And so my invitation is for us to spend the rest of our lives joyfully trusting God to be God and doing what he wants to do and celebrating that God would invite sinful people like you and I into his family. Amen. That's the gospel. And so this morning we get to take communion. And I love this because I know we're walking the line, but symbolically, it's like this huge table with all these messy people. People like Jeffrey Dahmer, people like Austin Edwards, people like uh, Rachel Denhollander, people like you around this table with all these different brokenness, all these different struggles, all these different sins, and yet all of it, Jesus says, it's finished. I paid for it all. And so as you see this line coming up to take communion, the, the, the bread represents his body that was broken for you on the cross. His blood, or the wine represents the, his blood that was spilled for you. And so as you see this, you get to see every person God pursued. God did a miracle to save them. This isn't a line of good people. This is a line of broken people that God decided to save. Amen. And so as we take communion, would we see the glory of it and the splendor of it and the scandal of it as we get to take communion and remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together.